Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. All right. So uh, my name is Jim McCafferty. I just want to start by thanking uh, Professor Matthews and then also the uh, Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity for this invitation. Uh, I feel pretty honored, and I'm, I'm thankful that uh, you're here. I've taught in this classroom before, and it kind of looks like class. We've got some people dozing off. We've got some people really paying attention. Uh, hopefully, for those of you that are paying attention, we can, uh, you know, uh, uh, get some learning in today. So I'm going to kind of overlap a little bit with what uh, Pete said and just kind of talk about incarceration rates uh, in the uh, United States. Uh, uh, the most recent census of our state and federal prisons, uh, which is from 2016, shows that there's about one and a half million people incarcerated today in the United States. Uh, if we look at, say, uh, uh, jails, our local jails as well, there's another six to 700,000 people that are incarcerated in the United States on any given day. And um, uh, to reemphasize something that Pete said, just about every single one of these inmates eventually gets out. Most people don't die in prison. Somewhere north of 95, 96% of people that are incarcerated actually leave prison one day. Um, so, we have to be focusing on uh, uh, reducing recidivism. And I'm going to go over some of the numbers that Pete was talking about with recidivism rates. But, you know, in the last 10 years or so, we have seen a, a, a somewhat significant drop in prison populations across the United States. Since about 2008, there's been about a 10% drop in the uh, incarceration rate in uh, the United States. That's kind of the good news. The bad news is that that's aggregate numbers, and we start disaggregating that by uh, different states. Only about 20 of the states are responsible for that 10% drop. Uh, and there's a really good book out that came out about uh, a year or two ago called Locked In by a law professor, John Pfaff, at uh, Fordham Law. That is uh, something that's worth uh, your time if you're interested in this subject. And he talks a lot about criminal justice reform from a prosecutorial point of view and the amount of prisoners that prosecutors are sending to these uh, institutions. Um, <clears throat> you know, even though there's been this drop, uh, uh, we, we do have to kind of say that's been a welcome change for many reasons, and policymakers and politicians are starting to revisit the role of prisons in the United States. Now, for my presentation, I'm going to be focusing on prisoners, uh, prisoner recidivism and uh, kind of some of the core principles that can be used to reduce uh, prisoner recidivism. Um, the numbers that you see up on the screen here are from a, a large study done by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which is part of the Department of Justice. 
This was a study that was published in 2014 looking at over 400,000 prisoners that had been released from prisons in, I think, about 30 states. Um, and we can see that the numbers up here aren't very good, right? About a third of them are rearrested within about six months, and within about five years, uh, more than three quarters of the people had uh, eventually been rearrested. And by the way, this was a replication of another large study that the Bureau of Justice Statistics had done. One in um, the one previous to that was of 250,000 prisoners released from prisons in about 20 states in 1994, and uh, the numbers are essentially the same. That needle moves up and down maybe a little bit, a percentage point or two, but uh, this kind of shows that we have a reentry crisis in the United States. So I want to get back to the title of my presentation about what works and what doesn't work in uh, criminal justice and criminal justice reform. Uh, and, and, and particularly when we're talking about inmate and prisoner reform, I think the goal has to be recidivism. When somebody says what works, and I have a title like what works, we want to know what works to reduce criminal behavior. We want to know what works to reduce uh, uh, reoffending. Because of these numbers up here are so poor, and it kind of plays into some of the things Pete was saying about how costly and how burdensome uh, uh, state prisons and state correctional agencies are to our state budgets, and then also there's the, the part of it that it's kind of the right thing to do. Warehousing offenders has uh, what researchers call an itrogenic effect, and this itrogenic effect actually, uh, there's some research that shows that simply warehousing people in prisons and keeping them in prisons too long can actually increase the likelihood of them recidivating in the future by about 10 to 15 percent. So. <clears throat> My position for this, uh, le uh, this lecture is that you know, we should really be focusing on reducing prisoner recidivism and how do we go about doing that. So I'm going to start with the last part of my title first and kind of talk about some things that don't work to reduce recidivism. In, you know, in the criminal justice system from police to courts to corrections, we do a lot of different things and we put a lot of money and, and just human effort and capital behind different programs that don't work to produce some sort of um, uh, intended outcome. So th there's a whole bunch of programs I could have picked from to kind of draw my ire today, but today I'm going to go with uh, Shakespeare Behind Bars. Uh, it's a fairly innocuous program. Uh, they teach, they go into prisons, and the program works a little bit something like this. You get some prisoners, some hardened criminals, sit around, and they read, recite, and eventually act out uh, different Shakespeare plays. And the goal is to eventually reduce their recidivism. This is part of their mission statement taken from their uh, website, to allow inmates to develop life skills that will ensure their successful reentry into society. I've read most Shakespeare plays. I've been to many different uh, um, shows, and uh, you know, most Shakespeare, while it's good and fun and interesting. It's about murder and adultery and, uh, uh, you know, different things that, you know, maybe we don't want to reinforce as something uh, that we're talking about with uh, uh, prisoners. I, I just picked uh, uh, Shakespeare Behind Bars. It's just one that keeps on coming up in my mind when I'm lecturing in classes. But there is a whole group of programs that some researchers refer to as correctional quackery. And quackery is a term that we typically think about with medical doctors, right? 
you call a medical doctor a quack that wants to kind of, you know, let your blood out if you have cancer or make you wear some silly little stone to kind of make you uh, try to uh, feel better with some ailment you might have. And there's a lot of examples of correctional quackery that go on. And I'll just... I'll focus on some large groups of them. Art therapy, getting you know, uh, uh, inmates to kind of uh, express themselves through art and uh, give them a brush and a canvas and let them do their best Bob Ross impersonation. Um, but for those of us that are working in the criminal justice system, and I worked in the criminal justice system as well as Pete, prisons are filled with good artists. I mean, there's just, that's a skill that they actually do have. Uh, they're pretty good at it. Gardening therapy, diet therapy. Uh, there's a lot of dog training programs. Restorative justice is one that's very popular now. The effect sizes, I know restorative justice is very popular for some folks. Uh, the effect sizes are pretty small, and it actually focuses mostly on lower risk inmates. And we'll get to why maybe we shouldn't be focusing low, on lower risk inmates uh, uh, in, um, in a second. Good news is that there are... There's a whole group of, um, whole body of research that shows that there are some characteristics of correctional programs that can work to reduce recidivism. And collectively, they're known as the uh, principles of effective intervention. Now, I'm going to focus on three of the principles of effective intervention. The first one is going to be the, the risk principle, the who. Who are we going to target with our correctional interventions? And the risk principle is simple. If we have a group of offenders, and we can kind of categorize them into low, medium, and high-risk offenders, and those high-risk offenders recidivate at a very high rate, and those low-risk offenders don't really recidivate much at all, which group are we worried about? We're going to be worried about the group that does actually commit a lot of crime. Second thing is the need principle. This is the what. What are we targeting? And we're going to go through some of the, uh, the major... Uh, the major eight uh, criminogenic risk and needs factors uh, today as well. And, and finally, the, uh, the responsivity principle, uh, that's kind of the how. How do we go about changing offenders' behavior? And uh, we're going to be focusing today on using behavioral approaches. Uh, the responsivity principle has several different dimensions. For, for this, we're just focusing on um, uh, be, uh, using behavioral approaches. Uh, and I should have said this at the outset. I'm giving you like the best tracks off the greatest hits uh, album of some sort of review of correctional intervention. So uh, I'm doing my best to boil it down as much as I can here. So let's start with the risk principle. There's three different dimensions to the risk principle that we're going to focus on uh, today. First, I've already said, you know, we should be targeting offenders with a higher probability of recidivism. Uh, the risk principle is practiced across the criminal justice system, though courts and cops might not necessarily refer to it as the risk principle. If you're, say, a chief of police and you are, uh, you're looking at your jurisdiction, you know that there are some neighborhoods that might have high crime rates and some neighborhoods that have low or non-existent crime rates. Where are you going to focus your energy and attention and money and resources on? You're going to focus it on where there is a lot of crime because that's where you can make the most difference. Second is we need to provide the most intensive treatment to the higher risk offenders. That kind of goes hand in hand with number one. Uh, when it comes to uh, yeah, uh, intensive treatment, we can't kind of have these one-size-fit-all type of programs. We have to be able to differentiate people based on their likelihood of uh, recidivism. And finally, intensive treatment for lower risk offenders can actually increase recidivism. And that's an important aspect and dimension of the risk principle 
uh, that if we get lower risk offenders grouped in with higher risk offenders, it kind of goes back to what Pete was saying, turns into a, a, a crime school. Or it could also, um, if we have lower risk offenders that have established pro-social connections out in the community, it can interrupt those pro-social connections in the community and cause them to commit uh, uh, more crime. This is the risk principle kind of in action. This is not with adult uh, prisoners. This is from some data I have uh, with some uh, risk assessment projects I've kicking in Ohio. When we look at uh, uh, you know, risk uh, based on recidivism, we can see the high-risk offenders are recidivating much more than these lower-risk offenders. Where should we be focusing our attention? We should be focusing on the high-risk offenders. The next principle of effective intervention is the need principle. Again, this is the, 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 the what. And it's going to identify what we should be targeting, what type of attributes we should be targeting about these individuals. There's two types of needs factors. And needs and risk factors are essentially the same thing. They actually serve two different purposes. Uh, the first type is static risk factors, something that you can't change about an individual. You can't change whether or not somebody committed a crime in the past. You can't change somebody's age. You can't change whether or not they've been a victim of a crime or a victim of uh, some sort of uh, abuse in the past. And as we'll see, we probably shouldn't be focusing on those because you can't change that about individuals. Uh, but you can change some dynamic risk factors. Those are things that can be modified through interventions. And I like to use the analogy to, to heart disease, right? We know there are some major risk factors for, for having a heart attack. If you had a, a, a parent that had a heart attack, if you have, um, say, it's in your family, or you yourself had a heart attack in the past, you can't change that. You can change your weight. You can change whether you smoke. You can change how active you are. Now, just by changing that doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to have a heart attack, but it significantly lowers the likelihood that it's going to happen. These dynamic risk factors, they're known as criminogenic needs, and that's really what we should be targeting with our interventions. So um, the list up here is the uh, central eight uh, um, risk factors, the central eight uh, criminogenic needs. Uh, all but one are dynamic. The first one is uh, a static risk factor. These are the attributes of individuals that are most highly correlated with criminal behavior and with the likelihood of recidivism. We can kind of draw a line here before, between four and five. The top one are known as the, the big four, and really the big four operate through what's going on uh, uh, down here. Now, in a recent, um, well, not so recent study, but uh, in the last eight years or so, study put out by the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, they looked at their group of parole violators and co compared the com parole violators with the, uh, the people that were successful on parole. And they were able to kind of illustrate uh, the big eight here, the central eight here, and the big four. And we look at employment and financial situation. Those that violated their parole were less likely to have job stability, less likely to be satisfied with an employment less likely to take low-end jobs and work their way up, and more likely to have negative attitudes towards employment. Part of successful reintegration is getting people a job for sure. 
That's just not enough. We have to change their attitudes, their values and beliefs about the job. If we have offenders that are saying, you know, I can make more money in a day than you can in a week, or I'm not into that 9 to 5 jazz, the likelihood of them being successful starts to go down very much, regardless of whatever employment opportunity we hook them up with. Social network and uh, living arrangements, we can see that they were uh, more likely to hang around with criminal individuals, less likely to have a spouse, less likely to be in a stable and supportive relationship, and less likely to identify someone who served in a mentoring capacity. This is all right here in the bottom portion of the Central Eight. And uh, last one I'll show you here, looking at pro-social skills and attributes. Uh, these individuals had pro-social skills, uh, they weren't anticipating the long-term consequences of their behavior. They acted impulsively, and they were more likely to maintain social, uh, anti-social uh, attitudes. This is from a, uh, a meta-analysis that was done about 15 years or so ago, looking at the outcomes of programs in terms of recidivism based on the type of needs that they were addressing. And the bar chart's a little counterintuitive. The blue bar here is associated with a reduction in recidivism. And the red bar is associated, that red bar going down, is associated with an increase in recidivism. These are the positive things that we want to see, even though it's reducing. These are the negative things that we want to see, even though it's increasing. And programs that focus on at least four to six or more criminogenic needs were showing a sharp reduction in recidivism for that population. Now, it's important to remember that offenders aren't risky because they have a risk factor. Offenders are risky because they have multiple risk factors. And sometimes, uh, you know, we have to understand that the, multi-dimension, the multidimensional risk that some of these offenders pose uh, isn't necessarily focused on one attribute of their life. And I say that because some people are, you know, they're trained in mental health and they just think mental health. Some people are trained in substance abuse and they just think substance abuse. Um, we have to be able to, to, to target a whole range of things here. There are some programs that focus on non-criminogenic needs. Non-criminogenic needs can be things like uh, uh, self-esteem, some of these vague things like discipline, and we get programs like boot camps that come out of there that don't really have much of an effect on uh, uh, recidivism. So the last one we're going to talk about is the uh, responsivity principle. And the dimension of the responsivity principle that I'm going to talk about today is that the most effective interventions are behavioral in uh, uh, nature. Um, They have to be first focusing on current factors. Who are they hanging out with? Are they going to school? Are they going to the job like they're supposed to be going to? Uh, They shouldn't be focusing on old risk factors like those static risk factors that we were talking about because we can't change them. should be focusing on what's happening right now. They should be action-oriented, and this was something that uh, uh, took a lot of convincing for me uh, in terms of having been a probation officer and working with some of these groups of offenders, uh, getting them to kind of modeling appropriate behavior for them, getting them to to act it out, and reinforcing positive behavior becomes very important for some of these offenders, and it can actually reduce their likelihood of recidivism. And then finally, that their offender behavior is uh, appropriately uh, reinforced. So uh, last slide I got for you this morning is kind of some recommendations here. What works, what doesn't work when it comes to 
uh, prisoner and prison reform. First thing that we need to be able to do is use validated risk and needs tools that represent the R&R principles. R&R is risk, need, responsivity, what we were just talking about. This is my area in terms of what I do a lot of research on, and lately risk assessments have been taken on a great deal of criticism uh, in the media and from, uh, from some scholars, and there's been there's something that ProPublica did about two years ago that was just um, uh, damaging to uh, uh, the use of some of these tools and kind of got into the, the zeitgeist of um, uh, some folks that were... Uh, claiming that um, uh, these tools are biased or these tools can't predict recidivism the way they can. We have decades of uh, evidence that shows that these tools can predict recidivism and can do it very well. And there's a lot of the negative focus that has been uh, given to risk assessment tools has been focused largely on one tool called the COMPASS and uh, 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 some of the tools that I've worked with, LSIR, OYAS, ORAS, and I'm doing some work out in Arizona and Ohio right now. These tools actually have very good predictive validity in terms of uh, matching uh, persons to their criminogenic needs while also assessing their level of risk. Second thing we need to do is reduce uh, prison populations. And we've already gotten to a point where we're starting to see a downward trend in both population and the rate of population. And the rate of population is, um, uh, has been declining since about uh, uh, 2008. But some of the things that are associated with reducing prison populations, if we were to reduce prison populations, uh, we can uh, not, not just free up physical space, because like Pete said, uh, many of our prisons just here in Georgia are kind of over... Uh, overcrowded, which is a term I don't like. It's just crowded, right? I don't know where over starts and over ends, but it's just crowded. Um, and uh, overcrowding leads to a lot of other problems in prison. One of the greatest macro-level predictors in terms of violence in prison is uh, how many people are actually in an institution. Now imagine, there's like 50 of us in here, right? And we're all comfortable. Got some folks sleeping in the back. You know, got, got, a lot of, got a room up here in the front. Uh, but imagine we were to double that, okay? And imagine we were to, to have another 50 on top of that. Imagine how cramped and uncomfortable that would be. And when we start having, you know, people that are close together, you're going to start having some conflict. So it frees up physical space, but then it also frees up resources for um, other programming and other ways of uh, uh, addressing uh, offenders and um, hopefully trying to reduce their, uh, their criminal recidivism. Uh, the last thing that we need to do is uh, kind of cap the uh, length of uh, uh, correctional sentences while also uh, recognizing that there needs to be reform on the community end of it in terms of reforming our probation and parole conditions so that we don't have so many technical violations that return uh, so many pre people to prison like we saw uh, uh, earlier on in this presentation. Last thing that we need to do is increase the quality of program delivery in prison. We can change offenders' behavior. Okay? And uh, some people say we can't, they're just simply wrong. It's not easy. Imagine changing your own behavior for a second, okay? How many times have you gone on a diet and failed? 
How many times have you tried to quit smoking and failed? Changing behavior is difficult. But if we address it in the right way, we can actually work together to reduce that. Some of the examples of good quality programming that are designed around the research include cognitive behavioral therapy and a lot of different CBT programs. There are sex offender programming that works to reduce sex offender behaviors. Uh, Educational programming uh, in terms of, uh, one, getting people motivated about uh, uh, getting an education, particularly secondary education. getting them motivated and seeing why having an education is important, and then actually getting them the education as well. Uh, And then uh, the last thing is kind of social support services, Uh, uh, making sure that we uh, have pro-social individuals surrounding uh, some of these offenders so that they're not going back to their antisocial peers and going right back to what they were doing in the first place. So um, that's it from me today. I want to thank everybody for coming. And I appreciate your uh, uh, time and attention uh, today. So, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.